Amy Tan was almost 40 years old when she published her first novel, but that novel happened to be The Joy Luck Club, a massive bestseller that is, 30 years later, considered a classic. Only hoping best for you. It's not wrong to hope. No? Well, it hurts. Because every time you hope for something I couldn't deliver, it hurt. That's a clip from the movie version of the book. But here's Amy Tan herself to start us off, speaking at the Academy of Achievement in 1996 about the unusual and traumatic path that landed her at the door of literary superstardom. History is what we choose to remember. And in that sense, you can change the past because you can go back and you can look at things differently. And I'd like to take you back to a time in my life when I was 17 and I was about to leave home and I had two very, very big goals. And the first goal was to leave behind everything that I had been raised to believe, a lot of which was Chinese. And the second goal was to never see my mother again. Well, I failed those goals miserably. She certainly did, as you probably know if you've read The Joy Luck Club, and there's a good chance you have. It's been required reading in many a high school and college English class. Amy Tam was one of the first writers to place Chinese-American heritage and generational conflict at the center of an American novel. And as for her mother, well, we will soon get to the stories of what was at the root of Amy Tan's vow, a vow she broke to end their relationship. Coming up, a candid and deeply introspective Amy Tan on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Amy Tan's parents were Chinese immigrants to the United States. She was born here in Oakland, California in 1952. By the time she finished high school, she'd lived in 12 different homes. But that wasn't the biggest disruption of her childhood by a long shot. I was raised in a home with very strong beliefs, two sets of contradictory beliefs, in fact. My father was, in addition to being an electrical engineer, a Baptist minister, and so he believed in things such as miracles and the goodness of God good begetting good and bad begetting bad. And I tried to believe everything that he believed as unquestioned truth. My mother, on the other hand, had Chinese beliefs. They were sort of Buddhist, but not your kind of tranquil Zen Buddhist kind of beliefs. They were things that had to do with ghosts and ancestors and how things were fated to be. A lot of those beliefs went flying out the window the year that my father and my brother were both diagnosed with brain tumors. And my mother suddenly brought all these beliefs out of the closet and she called upon geomancers to try to find out what was wrong with our house, why it was out of balance. She called in faith healers who spoke in tongues to try and cure my father and brother. She prayed to a painting of her mother who committed suicide when she was nine years old. And in spite of all these things that she tried, in spite of the fact that she would never give up, my brother and then my father both died. And I can't begin to describe to you what kind of pain and outrage lie in wait for you when you believe that the world is held together by the centrifugal force of faith and when all that faith 
begins to wobble and teeters into hopelessness and everything you believe goes flying into the bleakest parts of your soul. That's when I decided that I would never believe, never trust in faith, never hope. Even before that pair of tragedies, life in her home was a pressure cooker of parental expectation. You know, I look back, I'm an adult now, and I say, they only wanted the best for you, parents. But at the same time, I I try to remember, and this is what I try to do as a writer, I try to remember what those emotions were like when I was younger and how they just didn't understand. They just didn't know who I really was. Um, And they didn't know just how much the smallest amount of recognition would have meant to me and how the smallest amount of criticism could undo me. My parents had very high expectations. They expected me to get straight A's from the time I was in kindergarten. I remember I was in kindergarten and there was a little girl who I didn't think was a very good artist. I thought I did very careful house, you know, with the chimney and the windows and the trees. And and she was more of an abstract artist. And hers was very loose and, you know, I didn't think it was very good. But they decided to pin hers up in the principal's office. Um, so that was like getting the A. And my mother wanted to know why was it my picture in that window? And and I was very wounded and frightened, you know, why wasn't it in the window? You know, and I remember feeling that pressure from the time I was five years old. Um, my mother had also a very difficult childhood herself, having seen her mother kill herself, so that she didn't always know how to be the nurturing mother that we all expect we should have. Um, I remember once one of my playmates from around the corner died, um, probably of leukemia, and my mother took me to this funeral. And she showed me, took me up to see Rachel, and I saw Rachel's hands clasped over her chest, and her face was bloodless, and her hands had were flat. And, and I was scared, because this was the little girl I used to play with. And my mother leaned over to me and she said, this is what happens when you don't listen to your mother. Um, and, and that's what I grew up with. Now, growing up in an American culture, of course, I also had other models, you know, these playmates who their parents were, hey, if they got a C, who cares, you know? Great, that was great, Billy. Here's, here's money to go out and get a candy bar. Well, if I came home with one B, I got scolded. And and so I grew up often thinking that I would never, ever please my parents. Filmmaker Irv Drasnan, who interviewed Amy Tan for the Academy of Achievement, asked her whether she believed the conflicts with her parents were more generational or cultural. Her answer? It depends. They're cultural if you were raised biculturally. And in this day and age, who's not? Um, I mean, even if you're not, uh, if your family is is of one culture, you're around people of many different cultures, and so you see different cultural expectations going on all around you. Um, but I think the cultural ones can sometimes confuse the generational ones. And I'll give you an example. You know, like if my if my mother didn't want me to date boys out of fear that somehow I would lose myself to this boy and ruin my life. I chalked up all of her fears to Chinese fears, not generational ones. Anything that was unreasonable, I said, was Chinese. So I made the culture the scapegoat. And that's unfortunate because it made me grow up wanting to deny that part of me, that part of my family, of myself, you know, that anything that was Chinese about me made me feel ashamed, made me want to bury that. 
so that this, what I felt was the stronger, more independent American side could come out. Um, and I realize now that um, some of the stuff that happened to me was simply the uniqueness of my family and my mother. It had nothing to do with Chinese culture. And some of it, yes, was rooted in some traditions of Chinese culture, like the, the use of fear in old families um, to, to keep children under control. But I think any mother worries about her daughter losing herself to some boy, you know, and ruining her life. So there was a mix of things. Whatever the cause of the tensions and the pressure, the result was Amy Tan felt she never had a chance to think about what she wanted to do, who she wanted to be, until much later in life. That was all predetermined by her parents. I was told what I was supposed to do when I was growing up. Deep down, I wanted to be an artist. But I knew that you couldn't make any money being an artist. That was... That was just play. Um, my parents told me I would become a doctor, and then in my spare time I would become a concert pianist. And so both my day job and, you know, my spare time was sort of taken care of. Um, and, um, and I think it really terrified me when I got to a point in my life wondering if that was something I really could do. Did I have the ability? You know, I, I wasn't that good of a pianist, and I didn't know whether I really wanted to help people who were sick and had diseases, and, you know, was that really in me? Let alone, you know, could I pass a science course? And becoming a writer? Don't be ridiculous. Except there was this one moment in her childhood, she remembers, when the possibility held out its arms and beckoned. I did do some writing when I was young, just as everybody did in classrooms. And I wrote an essay called What the Library Means to Me when I was eight years old. Um, and it was very simple. It said things like, my name is Amy Tan. I'm a third grader at Matanzas School. And then I did what um, my father always did. He was a minister. And I, I tried to be very sincere, you know, sort of go for the emotion, you know, about how the library is a friend. And this really all was very sincere. But at the end, this is why I think I won this essay contest, I um, made a pitch for money, which, of course, is what ministers do at the end of their talks. And I, I, I said how I had given, I think it was 17 cents, which was my entire life savings at age eight, to the Citizens for Santa Rosa Library and that I hoped that others would do the same. And, and so they decided to give me the award. They published my little essay, and they gave me a transistor radio. And at that moment, there was a little gleam in my mind that, you know, maybe writing could be lucrative. But I kind of forgot about that later, because again, my parents said, you're going to be a doctor. It wasn't until I was 33 years old that I decided to try writing for myself. I should take that back a little bit because I actually started doing some other kind of writing before I wrote the fiction. I was writing for businesses. And um, I think my mother was a little skeptical in the beginning, but fortunately, as a freelance writer, I was successful almost immediately. And so she was very proud because she measured the success in terms of money, which is what I started to do as well. And my goal then became to increase the amount of money that I made each month. Not, not simply each year, but each month. I mean, talk about pressure to have more billable hours each month. So that by the end of my third year of being a freelance writer, I was billing 90 hours a week. I had no time to sleep. I had no life. People said I was crazy, that I was a workaholic. And, and I couldn't understand how it was that I had these wonderful clients and I was making all this money and I wasn't happy and I didn't feel successful. Um, so I finally, that's when I started to write fiction. My mother then, um, you know, it didn't matter to her that I was writing fiction because I still had the job. 
I made it a goal, however, to cut back and work only 50 billable hours a week. Um, uh, and I, because my family was not a literary family, it wasn't that my, my interest in the fiction really wasn't something I shared with my family. No one in my family um, really was a reader of literary fiction. So I didn't have encouragement, but I didn't have discouragement, because I don't think anybody knew what that meant. Growing up, Amy Tan loved gothic stories, the grimmer the better. And like all good American girls, she also loved Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie, Little House in the Big Woods, by the shores of Silver Lake. She read a book a day, which she got from the library. In her house, there was only a used copy of the World Book Encyclopedia, one book of Chinese folktales, and of course, the Bible. Reading for me was a refuge. Um, I could escape from everything that was miserable in my life, and I could be anyone I wanted to be in a story, in it, through a character. Um, it was almost sinful how much I liked it. That's how I felt about it, that it was this, if, if my parents knew how much I loved it, I thought they would take it away from me. Um, and I think I was also blessed with a very wild imagination because I can remember when I was at a, an age before I could read um, that I could imagine things that weren't real. And whatever my imagination saw is what I actually saw. Some people, of course, would say that was psychosis, but, you know, I prefer to say it was the beginning of a writer's imagination. <laughs> if I believed that insects had eyes and mouths and noses and could talk, that's what they did. If I thought that I could see devils dancing out of the ground, that's what I saw. If I thought lightning had eyes and would follow me and strike me down, that's what happened, you know. Um, and, uh, and I think I needed an outlet for all that imagination, so I found it in books. Um, I also grew up, thankfully so, with a love of language, and that may have happened because I was bilingual at an early age. I stopped speaking Chinese when I was five, but I loved words. Words to me were magic. Um, you could say a word, and it could conjure up all kinds of images or feelings or chilly sensation or whatever it it was amazing to me that words had this power and i don't i don't know where i got that feeling ex possibly from my father since he was a minister um he could say words in church and make people go up there and pledge 10 percent of their money you know that was powerful um you do the same, you know, as a writer, you do the same thing today. You write a book and you hope somebody will go out and pay $24.95 for what you've just said. Um, but I, I think books were my salvation. Books saved me from being miserable. I meet writers these days, some of who, I remember one writer sat at the, the foot of Thomas Mann and um, was... Um, reading Flaubert in French, you know, when she was 15 or something. I think, I wonder what kind of writer I would have been if I had had that kind of privileged upbringing. Um, but I don't regret it at all because, you know, I grew up in a family that didn't speak English that well. A lot of people couldn't understand my mother. Um, nobody really cared that much about um, literature, although my father, I think, was a natural storyteller being, an, being a minister. And, um, and yet there was a lot of storytelling going on in our house, family stories, gossip, what happened to the people left behind in China, the gossip about people's character that went around as my aunt and my mother shelled peas uh, on dining table covered with newspaper. Um, overhearing things being said in Chinese that I wasn't supposed to understand, which is the only reason why I understand some Shanghainese in Mandarin. <laughs> um, and, and being told um, that there were certain books I couldn't read, which made me go out deliberately and find those books. 
Um, the Forbidden Things uh, were a great influence on my life. I was forbidden from reading Catcher in the Rye. I was forbidden from reading The Herod Experiment. Um, and also a book called Psychopathia Sexualis from the 19th century. And when it was discovered that I was reading this, my parents called in the family minister to counsel me, actually the youth minister. And the youth minister said how this would corrupt my mind and, you know, I would go insane and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, we were seated in my parents' um, bedroom on the, my parents' bed. And, and I have to tell you what was so profound about that is that here this man who I was supposed to trust was telling me about these things. And suddenly he saw that I was very sad because at the same time my, my father was in the hospital dying. So he says, oh, cheer up, you know, it's not that bad. And he threw me on the bed and he started to tickle me. Now, even at that young age, you know, being very innocent, I knew that what he was doing was wrong, and he would not stop. And, um, and I found out later that he um, had seduced a young girl, left his wife, a 16-year-old, ran off with a 16-year-old, you know. And, um, and because of that, you know, it's, it's also made me hate. I, I will, cannot stand being tickled to this day. But it made me... Um, disbelieve everything he had to say about books being bad for you. That I was intelligent enough to make up my own mind. That I had not only freedom of choice, I had freedom of expression. And I think that in part also made me a writer, a certain stubborn streak. Tan says that after she became a successful writer, Older family members and friends would recall her as a very good child, well-behaved. But she thinks their recollections are clouded by her fame. Their memory is warped. And I have a writer's memory, which makes everything worse than maybe it actually was. Um, I think I was a gloomy kid. I was um, trying to behave, um, trying to be good. I really, really loved my father, and he was you know, my my mentor in a way, so I wanted to please him a lot. Um, my mother said I was a clingy kid until I was but four. Um, and I also remember that from the age of eight, she and I fought almost every day. Um, I remember that when I was six, starting at the age of six, I had thoughts of suicide. My first suicide attempt was with a butter knife, so it didn't really, it, it hurt, and then I stopped. But, you know, the fact that I had those thoughts when I was very young was an indication that I was a very um, gloomy kid. I had some uh, ways, that, ways of thinking that were not healthy. Um, I loved to read. I was solitary. And then later I became a rebellious kid. There's one side of me that wanted to behave and to, to hear a voice that was God's voice saying, Amy, I have a mission for you. You know, you are going to go out and save this country. On the other hand, I wanted to go out and be a rebel and um, wind up in jail, which is what I almost did. Um, and I think that other side, the rebellious side, came about because I never thought I was going to hear the voice of God and that I'd never be able to get any kind of mission. So if it couldn't be good enough for God or for my family or for my mother or my father, I might as well be bad. And that I could succeed in. The year after my father died, after my father and brother died, my mother took us to Europe. And there away from everybody, away from the past, away from people who always thought I was this nerdy little girl, I exploded into a wild thing. I shortened my skirts, I put on makeup, I hung out with hippies. I got myself a first boyfriend who was a German man who was 26 or 24, I was 16. And it turned out, much to my delight, that he was also the father of an illegitimate child which made him even more despicable in my mother's eyes. And anything that my mother hated, that was better. Um, 
he deserted from the German army. And I found out later, not simply from its army, but the mental hospital. And uh, um, my mother was convinced that this man was going to ruin me. And I can tell her to this day, she still doesn't believe this today. I swear on camera, this man did nothing more than kiss me. <laughs> I wasn't that stupid. <laughs> I mean, I knew he was, he was pretty low. <laughs> um, but it, it was exciting. You know, first romance, guy wrote beautiful love poetry. And, um, well, it turned out that his friends were into dealing in drugs, uh, hashish or marijuana and something. And I hung around with these people. And I here's a girl who went to church every single day, you know, Bible study, choir practice, youth sessions. And I go into this environment where I know nothing about anything. I start smoking. I start drinking. Um, people roll hashish in their cigarettes. I think, well, that's, that's part of it all. And I end up getting arrested. Well, this was a moment in my life um, when I thought for sure my life was over. I reached a point where I had infuriated my mother so much. I mean, we nearly killed each other, literally. And I was sick to my stomach, literally. I had dry heaves. And, and the pain was so enormous that at one point, when I thought I was going to die, I just suddenly realized it, that scared me. And it was scary to live, but it was scarier to die. And I remember just saying, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live. And that some strength, it's hard to describe what it is, you know. You, you just start to pull through and do things. I still did things, a lot of things out of anger for a while. Um, and I was lucky that I met a very kind person a very good person, um, and that person is now my husband. He was a very sweet man, and I wasn't in love with him when I first met him, but I knew he was a good person. I said, this is the kind of person my father was. And um, four years later, I, I married Lou, and we've been together ever since. That's 45 years as of this podcast episode. He's been my stability in life. I also learned to forgive myself, and that enabled me to forgive my mother as a person, you know, just realizing, no, she wasn't a perfect mother, but, you know, a lot of the things she did, she really did do out of love. Maybe they weren't the right things to do, you know, but a lot of, really was out of love. And once I realized that and, and stopped taking it as a, you know, a, a personal um, attack to, to torture me and make my life miserable, then um, I could look beyond it. I could look at it with even some humor eventually. And, uh, you know, that's helped. But I, I, I also have to say, you know, that throughout the years, I'm somebody who's, I think, had a a difficult childhood, that throughout the years, it's, it's not as though I came to one crisis, overcame that, and the rest of my life was smooth and perfect, and here I am. I'm happy. I think life is a continual series of bumps and crises, and you think you're never going to get over a hurdle, and you get over it, and you enter into what one writer, Richard Ford, calls the period of existence, and that's when you survive. That's when you can look back on what's just happened and you make sense of it and you, you grow, you stagnate, or you go back down, but it's your period of existence. But the little, the hurdles, the conflicts are, those really are momentary, you know, and, and you get over them and you see what happens afterwards. During the opening of this episode, I played the beginning of Amy Tan's speech at the Academy of Achievement Summit, where she laid out the origins of her intense conflict with her mother. Well, she went on in that talk to tell the story of how those conflicts began to evolve and resolve so that she could get to the period of existence she just referred to. So here she is, picking up with that part of her story. Now I want to take you to a moment 
when I'm now 33 years old. And I'm older and I'm doing fairly well. I'm a freelance business writer writing for IBM and AT&T, a lot of nice corporations. I'm making good money. I'm happily married. I have, we own our own house. And I sort of get along with my mother, but only because I know what things to avoid saying to her. And I see her occasionally, but as little as possible. One day I was on vacation in Hawaii, and I received a phone call four days later from when it was actually placed a phone message. And that's, the message said, don't panic, but your mother has had a heart attack. And I went to a phone, a pay phone, I was thinking, my God, it's four days later, I've lost her. And what was most terrible to me was I didn't even know what I had lost. I thought, who was this woman who was my mother? Who, what were her dreams? What were her greatest wishes for me? And as I went to the phone, I said, Dear God or dear Buddha, whoever is listening right now, I promise if she lives, if she lives, I will do anything. I will get to know her. I will take her to China. Well, I got to the phone and she said, hi. I said, oh, you're, you're alive. She says, yeah, you know, I got in a fight with a fishmonger and I, my chest started to hurt. And they put me in intensive care, but not, I'm okay now. So then I, I heard this little voice say, uh, you made a promise. <laughs> well, I took my mother to China. I did get to know three weeks, three weeks of China. Talk about Chinese torture, but it was worth it. I got to know her. I got to hear her stories about her past life, and I began to write those stories. A lot of people think that what I write is about cultures, and I don't really think it's about uh, demystifying uh, Chinese culture, American culture, or about identity. I think that what I write about is my confusion, and my questions, and my lost hopes, and all the things I couldn't ask when I was young, when I decided that I couldn't trust in anything. That's what I think my stories are about. They are about faith. They are about great hopes. And the fact that these books are read are, to me, a great miracle. There were other transformative events on that trip to China, too. During the interview, for instance, Amy Tan described getting to meet her half-sisters, who her mother had left behind when she left China for the United States. And that led Tan to other insights about her mother. Oh, yes. You know, I saw, for example, I, I used to think that my mother got into arguments with people because they didn't understand her English and, you know, it was because she was Chinese. And I saw in China that she got in arguments with Chinese people. <laughs> she was just as difficult in China as she was in America, you know, and I had to laugh about that. There were so many things that I could laugh about, you know, and see that, oh, my sisters were the same way, you know, that we had inherited things from my mother, but there were differences as well. And, and um, my sisters who had grown up thinking that they had been denied this wonderful, loving, nurturing mother who would have understood everything and been sweet and kind and never would have criticized them. Suddenly they were shocked to find this mother who's always, you didn't cook this long enough, or this is too salty, you know, and why do you wear that? It makes you look terrible. And, and they, they were shocked too. It had nothing to do with being American. They were daughters also wanting their mother's approval and didn't understand why their mother was so critical. Um, so I saw my mother in a different light, and I think you know, we all do that. We, you have to be in a displaced from what's comfortable and and routine, and then you get to see things uh, with fresh eyes. And I did see all of those things, and and even more. I discovered how American I was. I discovered how Chinese I also was by the kind of family habits and. Uh, the routines, things that were so familiar. I discovered a sense of finally belonging to a period of history, which I never felt with American history. You know, when you read about the Civil War, a lot of people, like my husband, can 
say, well, my great-great-grandfather fought in that war, and we have the gun and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I have a good imagination, but I could never imagine my ancestors having been in any of this history because my parents came to this country in 1949, so none of that history before then seemed relevant to me. And it was wonderful going to a country where suddenly the landscape, the geography, the history was relevant, and that was enormously important to me. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way for everybody, but for me, it was extremely important because I had spent so long denying that side of me. And in fact, I used one of the subjects I hated the most was history. I thought it was completely a waste of time. It had absolutely no relevance. And today, I love history. I find it is absolutely relevant to everything that is going on. Um, and it's not just some philosophical babble of, you know, how things repeat themselves or, you know, this is... You see the undercurrents of change and culture, and that is history. And it's those behaviors that are important, that history really is a record of behaviors and intentions and actions and consequences. So I, um, I think going to China was, was a turning point, and I couldn't have written the Joy Luck Club without having been there, without having felt that spiritual sense of geography. But there were other turning points, too, and other people who Amy Tan credits with paving the path for her along the way. Ironically, some of them were the very people who discouraged her the most. Half of it was adversity that got me into writing. Um, I had a partner, a business partner, who ended up cheating me, as a matter of fact. Um, we had signed some papers to have this business together, and, and, and I worked many long hours, and one day we had a disagreement, and I said I wanted to do more writing, and he said that my strength was in project management. And I said, well, I really don't. You know, that was like taking care of clients and doing estimates and going after contractors and collecting bills and I'm not good at that, you know. I, I hate that kind of thing. And um, he said, no, that's your strength. He says, writing is your weakest skill. You know, I thought I can either believe him or, you know, and just keep doing this. And I disagreed with him a little bit more forcefully. And I said, well, I get to decide, too, you know, because I'm a partner in this. He says, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean, no, I'm not? And he said, I never signed the papers. <laughs> So at that point, I said I was quitting. And he says, so what do you think you're going to do? And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freelance right. And he says, oh, fat chance. You'll be lucky if you make a dime. And with that bit of, you know, kick, kick of a send-off into the world, I was so determined to make it as a writer. I worked day and night, day and night, you know, trying to build my business, thinking of writing this business plan and thinking how I could do this. And... And in, so in that sense, it was adversity um, that made me force myself to be successful in that kind of writing. Now, the, the other writing, fiction writing, there's so many people, and in part, I would say that is, it's... Um, it's people I don't even know. Sometimes I think it's the ghost of my grandmother, the spirit of my grandmother, who never had a life of her own, who never had choices of her own, who was raped and forced to become a concubine, who killed herself because she had no other way to escape, who had no choice in the kind of life she was given, could not make her own living. And I think she said, you have this choice, and you can... You can change the past. You can do all these things. I also had a friend who introduced me to a writer. And at the time I was doing the business writing, this woman was a fiction writer. And my friends said, well, you could meet this woman and tell her how to make some real money doing writing. <laughs> and instead I said to the woman, you know, I've been thinking of doing some fiction writing myself. If I wrote something, would you read it? I recall this now laughing because it's the question I hate hearing the most you know oh my god you know here's somebody who's just starting out and it's going to be dreadful and you're going to have to try to find some way to let them 
you know, uh, be encouraged and but kind of try to help them and be truthful. And she said, sure. And she was wonderful. She read my stuff and she was very gentle and also very, very encouraging. And I kept writing. But she was trying to write fiction, she says, by making up things that were completely alien to her life. About a girl whose parents were educated or were professors at MIT. You know, there was no Joylet Club. It was the country club. It was, you know, this, this life. And I tried to copy somebody's style that I thought was very clever. Because I thought I was clever enough, you know, to write as well as these people. And I didn't realize that there is something called originality <laughs> and your own voice. Um, so one day after, you know, being told these, one of these stories didn't work, I, I thought, well, I'm just going to stop showing my work to people. And I'm just going to write a story, make it fictional, but um, they'll be Chinese-American. And what amazed me was I wrote about a girl who plays chess. And her mother is both her worst adversary and her best ally. And I didn't play chess, so I figured that counted for fiction. But, the, but I made her Chinese-American, which made me a little uncomfortable. And I, by the end of the story, I was, I was practically crying because I realized that although it was fiction, it, and none of that had ever happened to me in that story, it was the closest thing of describing my life, of the feelings that I had of um, these things that my mother had taught me that were inexplicable or had no name, this invisible force that she taught me, and this rebellion that I had, and then feeling I had lost some power, lost her approval, and then lost what had made me special. And it was a magic turning point for me. I realized that was the reason for writing fiction. Through that, this subversion of myself, of creating something that never happened, I came closer to the truth. And so to me, fiction became a process of discovering what was true for me, only for me. She enrolled in a writer's workshop at Squaw Valley, a place she now still visits as a special guest author. But back when it was all still aspirational, she was fortunate enough to meet a writer there named Molly Giles. She looked at my work and said, where's the voice, where's the story? There's so many things that are happening that are not working, but there's a possible beginning. If I were you, I would start over again and take each one of these and make that your story. You know, and I was at a stage where that kind of criticism didn't dishearten me at all. It made me so excited because she had said it in the most constructive way of not simply saying this isn't working, this is bad, this is nothing. She said, look at this. Here you have a voice, and it's inconsistent with this voice, but it's an interesting voice. So maybe you should think about this question. What is your voice? That's the question I still ask myself today as a writer. I had an agent who, by luck, read my stuff in a little magazine, wanted to be my agent, believed in me as a fiction writer before I ever believed in myself. In fact, I told her when she wanted to be my agent, I said, oh, well, I'm not really a fiction writer. I don't need an agent. But if I ever write anything else, you know, maybe 10 years from now, I'll let you know. And she pursued me, and she kept saying, you have to write more fiction. I said, well, you know, I, I have, can't pay you anything. She said, no, we're, I'm by commission. You don't have to pay me anything until I sell anything. I said, well, fine. You know, you want to be my agent and not make anything. I thought, boy, is she dumb. <laughs> and she hounded me until I wrote a couple more stories, and then she sold that as a collection called The Joy Luck Club. That's my cue, I'd say, to play a little from the audiobook read here by Gwendolyn Yeo. And then it occurs to me, they're frightened. In me, they see their own daughters, just as ignorant, just as unmindful of all the truths and hopes they have brought to America. They see daughters who grow impatient when their mothers talk in Chinese, who think they're stupid when they explain things in fractured English. They see that joy and luck do not mean the same to their daughters, that to these closed American-born minds, Joy luck is not a word. It does not exist. They see daughters who will bear grandchildren born without any connecting hope pass from generation to generation. 
I will tell them everything, I say simply, and the aunties look at me with doubtful faces. I will remember everything about her. To say that the instant and overwhelming success of the Joy Luck Club came as a surprise to Amy Tan is an understatement. I didn't feel fear failure. I, I expected failure. I think I've always been somebody since my, the deaths of my father and brother who was afraid to hope. And so I was more prepared for failure and for rejection than success. And the success took me by surprise, and it frightened me. On the day that there was a publication party for my book, I spent the whole day crying. I was scared out of my mind that my life was changing, and it was out of my control, and I didn't know why it was happening, and I thought it would ruin things. That, Because at that moment in my life, I was fairly happy. I was getting along with my mother. You know, my husband and I were had been married for a long time. We were happy. We had our first house. We had great friends. You know, we were doing well. We weren't starving. We had a comfortable living. And I thought, things are going to get messed up here. And I have no control over this. Because I could already see how people were treating me differently. That's a scary thing. You know, when people say, how has success changed you? You have to say, no, how have people changed toward you as a result of success? And how have you dealt with that change in how people have changed toward you? That's the most difficult thing. Um, so I went through a terrible period of feeling that I had lost my privacy, that I'd lost a sense of who I was, and that I was, I did not, I was scared by the way people measured everything by numbers, where I was on a list, or how many weeks, or how many, how many books I had sold, and um, so that by the time it came to the second book, I was so freaked out. I, um, broke out in hives. I couldn't sleep at night. I broke three teeth, grinding my teeth. Um, I had backaches. I had to go to physical therapy. I was a wreck. And I started a second novel seven times. And I had to throw them away. You know, 100 pages here, 200 pages there. And I'd have, is this what they liked in the Joy Luck Club? You know, is this the style? Is this the story? No, I must write something completely different. I must write, um, you know, uh, no Chinese characters and prove that I'm multi-talented, you know. Or, no, I must uh, write this way in a very erudite way to show I have a, you know, a, a way to use big words. And um, it's both rebellion and um, conformity that that you know, attack you with success. And it took me a long time to get over that and just finally being able to breathe again and say, what's important? Why are you a writer? Why did you write that book in the first place? What did you learn? What did you discover? What was the most rewarding part of that? Don't think of what's going to happen afterwards. If it's a failure, will you think that what you wrote was a failure? I mean, that the whole time was wasted? If it's a success, will you think the words are more valuable? And I think that that crisis for me helped to make me define what was important to me. And it started off with family, started off with knowing myself, with knowing the things I wanted as a constant in my life. Trust, love, kindness, a sense of appreciation, gratitude. Those were the things that helped me decide what I was going to write. My mother, meanwhile, all the time kept saying, write my true story. That's all you have to do. It'll write my true story. And I kept saying, no, that's not fiction. You know, I'm not writing biography. And I thought to myself, you know, writing is an extreme privilege, but it's also a gift. It's a gift to yourself, and it's a gift of giving a story to someone. What better gift can I give my mother than to finally sit down and listen to her entire story, hour after hour after hour. She's very repetitive, so this was this is hard work, you know, listening to her say the same laments in her life over and over again, but really this time asking for more details. <laughs> and getting this story out, and um, 
And I realized, you know, it was a gift that she was giving me, and it was a gift I could give back to her. And it didn't matter what happened to that book afterwards. If it didn't sell a single copy, if it, you know, was panned, that whole time I spent writing it, getting to know my mother, getting to know myself, all of it was worth it. Nobody, no review, no place on a list could take that away from me or make it more important than what it already was. I think a lot about death because of what's happened in my life, and I think I like to hope that there's something after death, and I like to hope that if there's something afterwards, the people I love will be there. So I say, if I die, who's going to be waiting for me on the other side? That critic or that movie producer or that TV exec? Or is it going to be my mother and my husband and my brother? and? Gosh, it simplifies things a whole lot, you know, it's just crystal clear what's important. Novelist Amy Tan, speaking at the Academy of Achievement's 35th Summit, which was held in Sun Valley, Idaho in 1996. The Joy Luck Club, which was published in 1989, spent nearly a year on the New York Times bestseller list. The book has been credited with opening doors for other Asian and first-generation writers, and it's been touted for its groundbreaking depiction of the Asian-American experience and the mother-daughter experience. But Amy Tan reminds us that she only set out to write about her own experience. As she wonderfully put it in a news interview recently, quote, if you just happened to throw a ball over a fence and it turned out it was someone's long-lost ball, You can't get credit for that. You were just throwing a ball. Tan's second book was called The Kitchen God's Wife. It was followed by The Hundred Secret Senses, The Bone Setter's Daughter, Saving Fish from Drowning, and The Valley of Amazement, all of them New York Times bestsellers. She's also written two memoirs and is working on another novel, The Memory of Desire. For the past 20 years after this interview was recorded, She has struggled with terrible symptoms from advanced Lyme disease, and she's also written on that topic. These days, in addition to her writing, she draws every day in a nature journal, fulfilling a childhood dream. Oh yeah, and she performs as lead singer with the Rock Bottom Remainders, a band made up of renowned writers of questionable musical talent who perform very occasionally to raise money for charity. We won't go out on their music, though, because, let's just say, their best experience live. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is made possible with generous funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you for listening.